カハンニャハラミタシンギョー Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn about us at zencare.org. Think about how we change the furushiki, the wrapping cloth, each season so that we appreciate that we're in a different season. To remember and to actually appreciate what season we're in.、And、to reflect on are you aware that you're actually with the universe in a changing season? Of your own mind and the mind of the world? Or are we still kind of caught into how we think we are? I've been thinking so much about, you know, Chodo and I will be headed out tomorrow morning, perhaps. For a few weeks to Tulum, what we call our beach house. <laughs> Not ours, really, but we steward it for the time we're there. And to think about how very often what happens during this time of practice is such an interesting time. For the Sangha in particular, about how do you show up? Some people are asking me, like, well, I guess no more practice for a few weeks. And it's still, in some ways, this kind of part of practice where we start to think that it's about for someone else. But for me, the beauty of practice is it's for. Practice. Maintaining the Sangha and showing up is to serve the Buddha Dharma, something beyond us, beyond me for sure. And it was so beautiful, you know, reaching out to, as Mayor calls them, our squad, our beautiful Dharma teacher friends. And how all of them were like, yes, of course we'll show up and offer Dharma talks. And so all the, the half day sit, and Gyoke Yokoyama, and Dayen, Shinzan, and Genyu Kojima from Japan will all be coming to give talks to support the continuous practice of the Buddha Dharma. 
So I just really encourage each of us to reflect, how do we support the continuing practice of the Buddha Dharma? Not even your practice. But practice itself. It's so beautiful. Again, you Kojima said, oh my god, what an opportunity. <laughs> of course. I remember for me, many years, I just felt like, oh, <laughs> if the teacher wasn't there, I'd be like, eh, maybe I'll give it a pass. <laughs> and thinking about this small band of us who were here during the pandemic holding the space, and all online holding the space equally. Hmm. Really moving. So this is the 11th talk in a series of exploring our ancestry And we're zipping ahead to the second century of the Common Era. Who was the 10th ancestor from Shakyamuni Buddha, about 400 years-ish. Parsha. who was in the koan about Parsha is that he attended Buddha Mitra for three years with never lying down. So he was this jisha and never lied down. Even though he was very old. One day, Buddhamitra was reciting a sutra and he expounded on the unborn nature of things. And hearing this, Parsha was awakened. And that's the end of the koan. Some say that he lived in Afghanistan, Parsha. Some say it was Pakistan. I love that it's not really clear. It's clear that he was a person. But probably migrating around. He was born in central India. And his original name was Durgata when he was born, which means 
difficult birth. Just before he was born, his father dreamed of a white elephant, which is actually very similar to Shakyamuni Buddha's birth, with a jeweled seat on its back, and the seat was a bright pearl, in the light of which illuminated the four communities of monks, nuns, and lay people. And right when he awoke, when his dad awoke, Parsha was born. It doesn't sound like a particularly difficult birth. <laughs> but what was it like for his mother? <laughs> they don't mention that. Another story about him is that apparently the mother was, he was, a, she was pregnant with him for 60 years, <laughs> which might make a difficult birth. Buddha Mitra was teaching in central India, and there was an elder named Kogai who was Parsha's father, and he arrived carrying Parsha. And he, vowed, he bowed to Venerable Buddha Mitra and said, my child was in the womb for 60 years. And for this reason, we named him Difficult Birth. I met a wizard, as one might do, who told me that this old person is no ordinary man, and he will become a vessel of the Dharma. So he was born as a 60-year-old man, very old. Imagine being born as a 60-year-old person. Please make him a monk. So handing his 60-year-old baby and saying, please make him a monk. So what is that about? I've never yet met a 60-year-old baby. And yet there's something about this age that at 60 is when he met his teacher. Some people think of their time is like it's too short, too long. I'm too old. I'm too young. I have enough time. I don't have enough time. But I love that, you know, at 60, it was like, okay, that's the time. 
So the venerable Buddhamitra shaved his head and gave him the precepts. And Parsha thought, after being in the womb for 60 years, and then aging another 80 years, I'm a total of 140 years. I've grown old, he said, after already being old. So interesting. I've grown old after already being old. Have you ever had this idea of your, where you are in the midst of your life? feeling really old. I've met many people, who, teenagers even, who felt like life has already passed them by. It's too late for them. And people around Parsha, when he was in his before he met Buddha Mitra, said, you know, you're so old, why do you want to waste your time practicing? You're so old, so old. I've actually even heard the opposite of like, oh, you're young, why, why practice? Go have fun. I am in favor of fun. <laughs> and people said to him, there are two kinds of monks, ones who study and ones who practice, and you're not up for either. Ever have those thoughts about yourself? You're not really going to be able to do it. You're too old, you're too young, you're not smart enough, you're not disciplined enough. I love that Parsha had to struggle with that, those voices. I tend to imagine that most of them are internal. <laughs> He heard all of these voices and said, I am a monk. I am a practitioner. And until I see it through, I won't give up. To me, this is so much the arc of practice, how we have to deal with those voices that say it's hard, you can't do it, forget it. Give it a rest. You're too old. 
to English. <laughs> it's the English group over here. <laughs> but it's just amazing to me how endless that is. He said, I'm not going to let my ribs touch the mat until I see it through. So what is that? Do you think he really didn't sleep for all those years? But to me, it's more of an attitude that I'm not going to give up. What would that be like? Say, I am not going to give up. I understand all the challenges. I don't feel worthy. I don't feel like I'm good enough. Too old. What is, the, what is your version of, I'm not going to let my ribs rest on the mat? And I love that it's actually so embodied, like my ribs on the mat. It's like so visceral. What are you going to do with your body in how you engage practice? How are you going to do it? It's said that from then on, he progressed diligently. And to me, this is really what is important about continuous practice. Steady, steady, steady. Steady, steady, steady. <laughs> and steady does not mean you don't move and get thrown or get filled with doubt in moments, or whatever that is. It means that you're actually just feeling those rocking, and feeling the winds of life, and rooting yourself. It's actually not healthy to not be moved by life. The other day, one of our students in our medical fellowship was sharing a story about how she had heard these cries and moans years ago, and they still inform her and inspire her to how she practices today. Because there was, she felt and experienced the suffering. So how do we use our own, the suffering of the world and our own struggle to actually motivate us to do it differently? Where's the fire? To burn away the dross, what's extra that keeps us from
there's this really odd moment where in his life, where apparently right after he ordained, he had this sense of the 21 grains of relics of the Buddha in front of him. Some say he had just a vision of, like, there's bones of the Buddha, literally. How do we see that actually what is around us are the bones of our ancestors that actually are, and some say that the Buddha's relics are like gems reflecting what's possible. The bones of Maizumi Roshi, the bones of Dogen, Parsha. How do we use that, the actual, that they lived and died to actually inspire us? And it said that he never paid attention to weariness. He felt it, but didn't go with it. Ever felt weary with practice? Mm. I love that he paid attention to weariness, felt it, and didn't go with it. How do we feel that feeling of like, oh, so hard, mm. Mm. and not go with it, not believe it? Mm. Mm. What could be more important than learning how, as we often talk about, how do we learn how to feel? an experience without identifying with. Mm. So that we can just experience life, experiencing this light. the river of sounds outside of this room. Without having to say car, traffic, I like it, I don't like it. Mm. Mm. So I'll leave you with a very beautiful poem I love very much. From the woman from the time of the Buddha, a nun who practiced then, Uta Tara. And she sang this. I asked Padachara, what is the path? Padachara said, 
Just see all thoughts, words, and actions arising all by themselves. Not from some imaginary point within you. I only partly understood what he was talking about. But I took a seat. And as the sun was setting, I saw the endless line of one thing leading to another that had brought me to the cushion that night. As the moon was coming up, I saw the arising and passing away of all things in every direction. As dawn was breaking, wisdom rose in the east and set fire to the long, dark night. As dawn was breaking, wisdom rose in the east and set fire to the long, dark night. Don't take my word for it. I love these women. Set fire to your darkness within you. I promise. It's like nothing you've ever seen. Thank you all.